Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, we're going to be meeting with a few members of Stein's agronomy team, Mike Smith and Bill Kessinger. We're going to cover some of the lessons learned from the 2021 growing season. So let's get started. Well, we've got two guests today. We've got Bill Kessinger and Mike Smith. Both of them are corn technical agronomists for Stein Seed Company. And I've invited them here today to talk about lessons learned from the 2021 season. I had an agronomist years ago tell me he'd been in the business for 30 years. And he said, you'd think I'd have 30 years experience. I should have 31 year experiences. And uh, the longer I'm around, the more I believe that. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Yeah, good morning, David. So I guess... For starters, uh, why don't we just have some introductions? You can tell us a little bit about yourself, the area you work in, and your background with Stein. Maybe start start off with you, Bill. Yeah, David, good morning. Um, my background here with Stein was I've been here for about 16 years. Started out as a, an agronomist, covering pretty much the eastern side of the Corn Belt, uh, Indiana, Ohio mainly. Uh, then became a regional manager for a couple of years with Stein, and then moved back into a technical agronomist role where I currently cover the eastern divisions for Stein, which is pretty much east of the Mississippi, uh, all the way out to the east coast on Marva Peninsula, down to Florida, and through that part of the, the south that I share with Mike Smith. Okay. How about you, Mike? So I started with Stein about 10 years ago, and actually my exposure to Stein started about five years earlier as a dealer. So I've had about 15 years working with some of the products. Uh, I currently reside in southwest Missouri, and I cover the southern division for Stein Seed Company as a technical agronomist. And that means essentially all the way from the eastern plains of Colorado, uh, the panhandle of Texas, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, up to about the Mississippi River, a little bit of the alluvian plain on the east side of the Mississippi River. So Bill and I have, have shared a couple of regions, and it's nice for us to bounce ideas back and forth. Great. And, and the nice thing is, so we kind of have the east covered and the south covered, but uh, I know you guys just had a meeting, so you had your agronomy team together, so uh, you kind of have the pulse on what's happening all around the corn-growing part of the United States. So um, let's talk about 2021. You know, it, like I said, it, 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 I think depending on where you're at, it held a lot of surprises. You know, Bill, the, with the customers you work with, what were some of the big takeaways from 2021? A few of the takeaways from 2021 was we started off really nice growing conditions, really nice planting conditions, and then Mother Nature kind of threw us a curveball, and we had a pretty heavy freeze event um, into April, first part of May, and that spooked a lot of guys, and we really had to start evaluating what that crop looked like and how some of the crops handled handled that cold weather. And it, it really amazed us how well some of the soybeans handled that cold weather, even though they had some of the emergence issues and, and some of the damping off wasn't quite as severe as what we expected. 
on the corn side, we, we know corn can handle some of those stresses a little bit, but one of the big things we learned was some of the disease pressures that came in that actually came back to haunt us later into the fall with some sandability issues and a few things that we believe actually incurred in the spring that we didn't see the results of till the fall. So that's kind of a trick that you have is you think you may have skirted the skirted the issue and then it comes back to haunt you later on. Yeah, that's that's the that's that's the hard part with our job. We we work with mother nature and Two plus two doesn't always equal four. <laughs> when so when you're going through that process, because again, you know, once in a great while, you're going to have that kind of a you know freeze event that happens, and and obviously you're in a tough spot. Then you have to evaluate how that crop's going to try to evaluate how that crop's going to come out of it. Um, you know, what are those factors you go with a grower to talk through to decide whether you know we're going to stick with this or we got to do something different. Well, when you're when you're trying to evaluate a crop, you're always the timeline's against you. Mother Nature, the calendar, is against you. So it, what you're looking for and how you're evaluating it changes as the calendar keeps getting shorter and shorter. All of a sudden, you, you start getting a little less picky <laughs> as, as, you, as you move through it. But at the beginning, I mean, you're really looking for that quality stand. You, you have to have a good stand in order to get a good yield. So you're evaluating how those plants are coming out of the ground. Are they vibrant? Are they the right collars that they need to be? Are you having that much disease issue and then how do I mitigate that risk so you're looking at these growers what treatments have been applied what fungicides have been applied what fertilizers have been applied and even to this point what herbicides have been applied applied to give you what changes you might be able to make so there's there's a whole little list that you start going through of okay what's happened and what are my options because in some instances you have options so we can start trying to figure out exactly what happened. And in other cases, your options really start getting limited. So you kind of have to kind of go around the barn the other way to figure out what you what you need to do and what you need to keep to make that farmer as successful as he can be. So, Mike, how did how did the season start out in the you know southern part of the Corn Belt? What's interesting about the south is there really are – uh, almost three areas that I deal in, and it very much mimics what is happening in the entirety of the Midwest. So as I go to the western part of my territory, the elevation greatly increases, so they start later, they plant later. It very much mimics what's happening in Iowa and central Illinois. Uh, and that area experienced fairly good dry planting conditions early, but then they unusually wet. You know, that's right on the area that we call the Great American Desert. It's very limited moisture. And this year they got all of their annual moisture in about a 60-day period, which is about 17 inches of rain. That's not very much for us in the Midwest. However, for them, it was phenomenal. Uh, then you come sort of in the four-state area, which would be Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Missouri, Arkansas area. That area was extremely wet to begin the season. Uh, so we had some challenges, like Bill was talking about, getting some of those products in in a timely fashion. Growers begin to press a little bit, and then they begin to do things that perhaps maybe they wouldn't do in a perfect year. Uh, and then when I get to more of my uh, alluvian soils, which is going to be eastern Arkansas, that was just the perfect growing season from beginning to end. Perfect planting conditions. We've got a little bit of moisture. Uh, it, we did have a little bit of flooding, a little bit of saturated soils, uh, but the corn had grown through it, 
and the soybeans hadn't gone in yet, so we we caught a break there. And then later in the season, perfect conditions. The hurricanes held off for us, uh, so we were able to get harvest done in a timely fashion. I would say there was probably a couple of things uh, looking back that affected all of those areas equally. One was the the uh, timing of planting. Um, sometimes uh, we're, we're wanting to plant earlier and earlier, and that window got pushed back a little bit later. Uh, so there's some evaluations happening right now, perhaps about uh, maybe the best time to plant in the southern geographies. Uh, and then I think that the second issue is something that Bill brought up. Some of those issues that occur early in the season that we really don't see the true effects of them until later in the season. Some of those stock rots, some of those uh, limited root uh, issues that have affected that root structure and is going to harm that plant later in the season, not being able to take up water and nutrients when it does get hot and dry. So Bill, Mike talked about early planting on soybeans. I know that's something that we hear a lot about, you know, here we're in, in kind of the I states. So in the area you work in, I mean, is that, what's kind of the thinking there on, on planting date? I feel like we're kind of pushing the envelope every year on what, what's early and what's too early. I completely agree with you, David. When I first started in this business, uh, you planted corn first uh, across the corn belt and then you worried about beans. Beans were kind of a secondary crop, but as farmers we get more progressive, we've learned that in order to maximize our yield potential, maximize the, the heat units, maximize the sunlight, that not only are we going to be pushing the, the envelope with corn, it, soybeans are starting to go in quite a bit early. And at first, we always thought the soybeans just couldn't handle the, the cooler temperatures, the, the frost potential was a little bit worse. But what we're learning is that the soybeans come out of the ground very well. And they actually handle some of the frost and freeze events much better than they did the beans we were using 20 years ago. The genetics are drastically changing, allowing growers to push that envelope to try to maximize that yield potential. So as that happens, you know, now you're, you're again, you're, you're against Mother Nature, right? It's finding the balance between what's right and what's too much. But So let's talk about in-season. So crop gets in, it's up, it's growing. Mike, what... And I know you cover a wide swath there. I mean, obviously, um, but, uh, you know, what's the in-season period look like? You know, some of the challenges that we face in-season every year, regardless of what the year is, this year seemed to be particularly uh, of issue is how do we get ample nitrogen for a corn crop or ample nutrient levels for a soybean crop uh, applied in, in a timely fashion? Um we want that nitrogen in place when the corn plant can use it. Um, and so in some instances, that means applying nitrogen ahead. Uh, obviously, our soils stay a little bit warmer than they do in the Midwest. And so we fall applications of, of anhydrous are out for us. So a lot of early, what we might call late winter, early spring applications are going to occur. Um, and also trying to figure out, is there a place in there for some supplemental nitrogen applications where we can get maybe a, a V6, a, a, a tassel application of nitrogen. And then on soybeans, addressing some of the micronutrient issues that perhaps pop up uh, during the season that, so you're making a decision for the, the next time that, that that field is going to be in that particular crop. The other issue that we face year in and year out is going to be diseases. Um, you know, we're the one, one of the areas that's going to be first to see the diseases move in. 
we tend to have a little bit more humid conditions. We tend to have a little bit more heat. And so those diseases that favor those kinds of things. So on soybeans, obviously the frog eye leaf spot is going to be an issue. Uh, and some of the fungicides becoming less effective is an issue. Um, I think the other thing that probably pops up in corn, uh, and this is very much a regional issue, but it's going to be southern rust. At what time is southern rust going to blow in? And then the, the number one call that I get in the summertime is, what do I do? It's here, what do I do? Whether it, it is gray leaf spot or it is uh, southern rust. Uh, so making those determinations in a timely fashion for a grower. And those are the kinds of lessons that when you learn in one year, it's going to help you carry forward and make decisions in the in the coming years. Uh, so I always encourage growers when we're doing some of those things, we're making those decisions, let's always leave some kind of a strip to see if we made the right decision so that we can go back and evaluate later. Did, did what we do pay off or did we in fact hurt ourselves? Uh, and that way we can always have some kind of a check against what our decision was. Because the infection can be there, but it may not be economically viable. That's great. Tree. It could, could be too late. The corn could already be made uh, or, or the soybeans could be made. And, and it's just a visible issue that we're dealing with and not necessarily uh, one that is going to affect the crop. So, Bill, what was impacting particularly the corn crop across the east this summer? The eastern side, like we, we just finished talking about, was we started off a little little rough a little, little cold, and then pretty much crossed big part of Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, the out to the East Coast. We went from tough to ideal conditions. Uh, the month of, of June and July, uh, the rains came about perfect, and then the crop looked tremendous for the majority of the growers that were out there. So when you're out there, when you were out there scouting, I mean, everybody was in a really good mood because of the way the crop looked, but Everybody at that point wanted, okay, now how do I protect it? Because the big thing we, as agronomists and as farmers, we look at is how do I mitigate risk? We know risk is coming. We know there's going to be disease pressures coming. At what point do we apply fungicides, as, as Mike Smith kind of alluded? Which ones are going to have the most efficacy? Uh, we know there's starting to be some resistance out there in the, in the industry and in different regions, so we have to make sure we're using the right fungicides at the right timing. So we have a lot of those discussions because fungicide application is very time-specific. If you start getting too far behind, it starts to become a problem because a big part of the fungicide is it's not curing the problem. You're trying to, you're trying to get it out there right at the beginning of when that problem is about to occur. That way you can avoid the damage that the fungus could apply to that crop. So for the most part, you're, you're really out there trying to watch that silk timing because you don't want to affect the pollination part of that plant. So you're watching that and trying to, to get out there as quickly as you can after that to get that fungicide on. And then, as Mike talked, as we keep starting to reach towards 300 bushel corn and our averages keep going up, we, we have to look at some of the micronutrient packs and do we need a third application of nitrogen? And, and this year we had some places and some growers that were, some growers that started using drones to get a, a third application of nitrogen out there and We've seen some very big results on some of those higher yielding environments across the eastern coast. Yeah, and I know we talk internally a lot about nitrogen application, timely application, and um, especially as you go to high pop narrow row, that's something you have to pay attention to. So I, obviously I hadn't heard about drones. That's an interesting application. But what are some of the growers doing to tackle that 
you know, that approach who are, who are bought into that process of timely application of nitrogen. To increase the amount of nitrogen that you can put on or the amount of times you can actually cross the field, a lot of guys are, are going into a drop situation where they're using a wide drop system or a, a taller a taller machine that they can spray with and they can switch it over and start applying that nitrogen farther into the season on, on 30-inch rows. And not only is it nitrogen, like I said, we talked about the sulfur as a big part of that in increasing that yield along with that micronutrient packet. We, we put a lot of things to nitrogen, but it takes – it takes a lot of groceries to feed that to feed that plan if you're going for if you're trying to hit that big number if your goal is 300 bushel corn you got to get out there and, and have the equipment to do it and what's changed over the past 20 years is 20 years ago there was a limited amount of equipment and technology that we had to make to make these management decisions today there's a lot of very good equipment out there to allow us to make multiple applications and do it in a timely manner and do it correctly I think I might just add one of the things growers look at just the gross volume of product that's put on and the t- Bill mentioned this, the timing is so key and understanding how a plant or a given organism is going to use that nitrogen, uh, particularly in a corn plant, understanding that it's going to be needed at the tassel stage and beyond through grain fill. So sometimes that nitrogen that's put on early might not be around. Uh, That's one of the problems that we face. We will lose a lot of nitrogen because of our wet conditions, because of our soil's ability to hold that nitrogen. And so strategies, you know, we can cheat a little bit. Bill, Bill doesn't always have this option, but we can fertigate. We have irrigation systems out west that we can put nitrogen through. Uh, Even through flood irrigation systems, guys can put nitrogen on. Uh, But the advantage to me of the narrow row system, uh, you can drive uh, horizontally across that corn crop and spread dry fertilizer. You can spread liquid fertilizer. You can get stabilizers in there. You can also add sulfur products to that so that you're getting the additional benefit of nitrogen utilization of that uh, applied product. So I think the the narrow system gives you so many uh, other benefits that perhaps you don't always have in a 30-inch row, but also can be applied to the 30-inch row system. That's the beauty of it. The lessons that we're learning can be applied across both both systems. And, you know, Bill, you mentioned sulfur. Uh, I know that's something internally we talk a lot about, I guess, as you're, is that something the industry is coming to that conclusion as well, or, or is that something that's common? The sulfur side of things, or I should say the sulfur piece of the puzzle here is, it's one of those things we used to get for free. Um, we used to get a lot of sulfur out of the rain. We've done a very good job as a country cleaning up our our atmosphere and cleaning that up and we don't get that sulfur that we used to get i know parts of the country used to get close to anywhere from 70 to 90 pounds of sulfur came out of the rain and now for the majority of the country we're under five pounds of sulfur that we were that we were getting just straight out of our rain and out of our atmosphere and that's something that some of the farmers are starting to realize Um, some of the co-ops and other companies are starting to realize that that load of sulfur that we used to get our plants are now becoming deficient. Our soils are becoming deficient because of what we've cleaned up. So we're starting to have to apply that because if you, you start looking at some of the university data, they're almost starting to require sulfur as the fourth essential element to grow in a crop. So growers are starting to get to the point of, okay, I understand this. I have to put this in to mitigate some of Like I say, it goes back to that mitigating that risk. And, and to Mike's point, the fertilizer application and the timing is, is crucial. Because the majority of the fertilizers, as we apply them, are not 
plan available as we apply them. So you have to you have to look at the environment that you're in. If it's going to be really dry, is it going to be really wet? So how do I apply that to make sure that the plant has the, I, I always call them groceries, that it needs when it's trying to feed itself? And it kind of, narrow, it kind of leads you to a, a narrower row system, or as you increase populations, you start controlling the temperatures a little bit better within those fields, especially at the soil level. And I think that's a critical part that a lot of people miss as we increase populations. We actually keep the soil a little bit cooler, which keeps all the biologicals, the bacteria, the things that are actually breaking these elements down in our fertilizer to make them to a plant available form. So one thing always leads to another. it's, It's the circle of life. It's a big circle. When you do one thing, it affects another and sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it's a negative, but I, I, I'm a big believer as you increase populations, it really helps your, your soil biology, which is going to help your, your nutrient load. I'm glad, Bill, that you mentioned that there is beginning to be a move towards recommending sulfur as that fourth nutrient. I've looked at four soil samples with recommendations recently, and all four of them had a sulfur recommendation with the nitrogen uh, recommendation. Uh, so I think even the universities in some of the labs are beginning to move towards that, adding sulfur as a regular recommendation with nitrogen applications. And just, I mean, in layman's terms, I mean, sulfur's relationship to nitrogen is, it, it just helps the plant be able to uptake that nitrogen in, in some form. Yeah, essentially, obviously, there's always chemical interactions going on within a plant. What it's doing is allowing that uh, nitrogen to be used most efficiently, most effectively, allowing the plant to pick up that nitrogen from the root hairs and translocate it all the way to the, uh, you know, we always talk about the source-sink relationship, that, that we're, we're developing the source uh, at, at the root and, and developing and bringing that all the way up to the leaf where we're converting sunlight uh, and, and water and nutrients into sugars. And then we have to get that to the sink, which is ultimately going to be the grain. And sulfur helps in every single step along the way, if I may, in that. You know, as we look back at 2021, I mean, were there what I call driver, a driver disease or issue, you know, that really was a widespread issue in the area you work in, Bill? On the eastern side, the new disease, and it's devastating in a few places, it's really starting to move across the tar spot. And as, a, as an industry, especially on the seed side, we are really trying to dig in to see, okay, what genetic factors do we have that shows some resistance or better tolerance to to tar spot. It's a disease that comes in very late, but when it comes in, it is devastating. It moves in rapidly. Um, I've seen walked into fields that pretty much you couldn't find any tar spot, and a week later it is completely riddled, and the plant begins to die very, very quickly, and you start losing grain fill, you start losing standability, and your yield dramatically decreases, and it's something that's that's relatively new to most of our growers um, in that neck of the woods. I mean, Michigan took it very hard this year as far as tar spot was, and we've seen quite a bit of it in northern Illinois, northern Indiana, and northern Ohio. So I think it's, it's one of those things as an industry we're still really trying to wrap our heads around of, okay, what fungicides have efficacy against it, and what genetic platforms and packages do we have to help try to mitigate that risk against that tar spot and as an industry we're learning i think at steinstein company here we learned quite a few things about some of the genetics we have and we're going to be able to hopefully help growers handle that better into the future but there's still a lot to learn with this tar spot disease 
just we need a new issue. <laughs> that's that's the best that, that that's part of the fun funs part of our job. Like I say, is that thirty one year experience. <laughs> Mike, how about you? Is there anything that was really kind of broad across the area you worked in? Year in and year out, our, our broad disease is going to be those stock ruts, those issues that occur very early in the season and then carry well into grain fill time. However, the the most pressing issues that we tend to deal with are those that blow in on the air. So that's going to be southern rust, gray leaf spot. Curvillaria is a new one that is coming from the south. You know, we're somewhat fortunate we're not dealing with tar spot in the majority of the area that I work in. However, it does seem to be mo- moving its way west. I know it was noted in uh, some eastern Iowa counties, some northeast Missouri counties, uh, and further west than it's ever been noted. So I think for us, maintaining a nice, healthy root system is going to be important every year. And then scouting to monitor these windblown diseases that are going to come in is going to be crucial in our southern corn growing areas. And and to, to pull in on that, on the scouting side of that, uh, we was in meetings two days ago with, with Warren Stein, and he made it a very good point. He, he showed you a, a picture, I think a lot of guys can visualize this, of basically a slice of bread and how mold starts growing in that on that bread. Well, when you scout fields, you may walk in and, and not see that disease because diseases come in the same way that, that mold's on that bread. You may have hot spots in certain areas, and some areas may not show any infection, some in, some areas may show a lot of infection. So as we really get out and start looking at these fields and scouting, we have to make sure we're, we're getting off the end rows and we're, we're, we're looking at a larger part of these fields. It's one of these things that it takes time, but we have to understand that it's not like the entire field's going to be covered into disease all at once. It's going to be spots, and those spots are going to expand. And maybe just building on that idea, the other conversation, uh, I've, I've had a couple conversations with growers where they will say, well, boy, this hybrid or this product really seemed to struggle with this disease and helping them to understand, well, that disease, it, it was just a natural relationship of the pathogen happening to blow in on a susceptible host. That's not going to happen every year. Uh, and so we talk a lot about the disease triangle or the disease pyramid and helping them to understand that you have to have all of those factors in play every single time in order for that to happen. Uh, and I assume it would be that way with tar spot, Bill. I guess I'm I'm not familiar enough with that disease yet. You're exactly correct, Mike. Everything has to line up. I mean, you have to have a disease, you have to have a host, and you have to have the environment. And if all three of those line up, you don't have a problem. But when all three of those line up, that's when the problem starts to begin. So especially tar spot coming in so late, it's one of those things you've got to watch maturities. So, I mean, different maturities are going to be at different grain fill levels when when the disease attacks. So that's part of your ROI that you're looking into is at what point was the host, was the disease, and was the environment correct for that specific issue you're facing. So thinking about harvest 2021, I mean, hopefully for most of our customers, it was a good year. But you know, thinking about the area you work in, and I guess I'll start with you, Mike, across south, you know, what what were the, what was the outcomes we saw from a harvest perspective? So beginning in the extreme southwest, uh, very, very good yields on corn. For the most part, fairly disease-free. So harvest went along pretty easy. There was not a lot of lodging issues, not a lot of windstorms. Very, very good reports from products coming out of the, the south and the west. Uh, as we moved into Kansas, uh, you know, Kansas has a phrase, um, it, it's crop per drop. 
And the idea is how much grain can you make based on each available unit of moisture that you have. And they had rather limited moisture this year, but for the moisture that they did have, they had reasonably good crops that they were they were pleased with. And again, I would say harvest just kind of clicked along. Once you kind of got to the Missouri area, it slowed down because what would happen, good yields would slow harvest down, exceptionally good yields, I might add. Uh, and then there were some pockets that were extremely wet where maybe the yields weren't quite as good. But then we would get the unseasonable rainstorm that would keep us out for five, seven days. And so it just seemed like harvest drug on forever. As a matter of fact, driving uh, from southwest Missouri to Iowa a couple days ago, still saw some corn standing in the field, still saw some beans standing in the field in places in Missouri. So obviously there's some folks that aren't done yet. In the uh, alluvian plains over there on the Mississippi River, they've been done for a while. Again, extremely good yields, yields that they haven't seen. I've had some people tell me that we haven't seen these in 20 years. So extremely pleased with the the products that were placed and also extremely pleased uh, with just the way that harvest went, just the way that Mother Nature uh, allowed them to get those products out. Good. Good. Bill? To feed off, Mike, we had, we had some places that everything just, just fell into place. Yields were extremely positive, high yields, things growers haven't seen before in both corn and soybeans. As you get out on the eastern eastern side, it harvest went smooth. Yields were tremendously good as, as you moved across, like say, the, the Carolinas, come back up through Tennessee and, and Kentucky. Again, harvest went, went fairly smooth and yields were, were really high. Then you, you start changing on the eastern side of the Corn Belt. Uh, the, the yields stayed high. Uh, we, we had tremendous yields across. Guys are very impressed with the way the soybeans were yielding, the weed control. And for the most part, they were very happy with the way that the corn was yielding across it. Uh, guys got in the, fir- the end of September, first part of October, then on that eastern, eastern part of the Corn Belt in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, it started to rain. And it rained and it rained, and it rained. It seemed like about every four days they caught another rain event. So the good part about that was, as as you talk to growers and he's out looking at this, trying to figure out how we were going to handle this, guys were buying tracks, guys were buying mud hog tires, trying to get some of these combines through. Yeah, it was slow. Yes, it was muddy. Yes, it was a pain in the butt. But... The yields were good, <laughs> and if you have high yields, that that changed a lot of people's attitudes. And 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 farmers were just fighting through it, fighting to get through it. And then as we kind of got to the end of it, it slowed down a little bit more again, because where are we going to put it? We have a lot of piles. We had a lot of elevators that were getting filled. Uh, we have do have a lot of ethanol processors across the eastern division out there, so they're they're processing corn as fast as they can. But with the size of the machines and as fast as we can move this now, we can. As, as an, an industry, we can harvest a lot of corn in a real short period of time. And for the most part, like take, growers are happy. It, everything, everything went well. They did a very nice job, like I say, mitigating that risk and, and going for that big high yield. And, and for the majority of guys, they hit it. And maybe just to add one more thing, David, I was thinking of this as Bill was talking. We sort of looking at this as a postmortem. And those areas where you didn't see those great yields, you can – based on our conversation, you can almost look back on that and see that there was one decision or a couple of decisions we planted too early 
or Mother Nature. And sometimes she holds the card, she, just too much rain. Or we didn't apply a fungicide or there was one decision that was made that maybe contributed to those uh, poor yields that that helps us to take that lesson and carry it forward into into uh, the next year. So. so, yeah, so the key is learn, find that lesson. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we know that Mother Nature holds maybe not all the cards, but a lot of them. 33%. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So you guys are in high demand. You do a lot of grower meetings. You talk to a lot of our customers. So as we talk about that kind of season post-mortem, you know, uh, Mike, what are what are the one or two things that that you're going to you know talk to your customers about when they say, well, okay, what are we taking away from all of this? So my message, uh, I was reminded of this this year. Uh, I remember from my agronomic training, it was preached into me that yield is the byproduct of genetics interacting in a management system with the environment. Uh, we write that as a a mathematical formula, Y equals G times M times E. And and I have that conversation with growers often to help them. You know, I jokingly said Mother Nature holds 33% of the cards, and it's true. There are a third of the things that are completely outside of our control. And so we have to control those things that we can. That comes to genetic selection and, and the management decisions that we're going to choose to apply in those situations. And so one of the things that I try to encourage customers to do is to mitigate their risk through a genetic profile, uh, relative maturity, all the way through heterotic families that they might choose to plant uh, so that they have a, a broad spectrum of protection out there. Bill talked earlier about mitigating as much risk as we can. That may be from an insect position or a disease position. So maybe we have some racehorse type products that have uh, maybe not quite as strong of a root structure under them, and then some defensive products that have a great root structure for my particular situation where we're trying to deal with some of those uh, root issues. And then from the management standpoint, try and look at those things. As I said earlier, there's there's one or two decisions that we made that didn't work out in our favor, and let's correct that and move forward. Just like a sports team, they're constantly trying to evaluate what did we do what was the mistake? Let's correct that mistake so that we don't make it again. Uh, so that's going to vary based on the place in the country. Uh, but I think generally they're going to come down to a couple of things. You know, was our, our planting time optimal? Uh, should we refine that? Should we be, maybe be using different criteria, looking at just soil temperature, or should we be evaluating, you know, 30-day weather forecasts with that, uh, some of those kinds of things? I think the other thing is, uh, as we talked about earlier with our fertilizer applications, is, is it may be the time in a year like this where fertilizers in short supply, uh, the cost is high. Maybe this is the perfect year to go to split applications or try applications of nitrogen so that we can accurately apply that and get the best efficient use out of that particular product for this given year. Sure. Bill, how about you? What are the one or two takeaways you're going to impress upon the customers that you talk to this winter. To follow up behind Mike, he hit a lot of things right on the head is, as far as my opinion as you're talking with growers. The big thing that we, we learned from last year is we did a lot of things right, but we did a few things wrong. Um, we really have learned that, that pushing this window of soybeans has is, is been beneficial. Trying to get those out, looking at the soils that we know are either tiled, don't have water pressure issues, and making sure we're getting those out as, as quick as we can. But the big thing, I, the conversation that keeps coming up 
recently is input costs. Input costs are rising across the board on, on pretty much every product that, that they have. And growers are like, well, what can we do? How can we change this? And like Mike said, well, if there's only X number of units in that's in your equation that you're going to purchase, how do we maximize how those are going on? Do we split apply that nitrogen? Do we, do we put this fungicide on at a better timing, change a little bit? Because growers, the first thing anybody wants to do when you start talking about budgets is, okay, what can we cut? And, and I tell growers, I get, you had 260, 270 bushel corn. You had 80 bushel beans. If you start cutting, don't expect to have those type of yields. We, we still have to manage this crop. We just now have to learn to try to manage it more efficiently. So with that, there, there's no silver bullet when I have this conversation with growers. Uh, just to sit here in the room and have this conversation, hey, this is what we're going to think. It, it's, it's almost impossible to do. It's, okay, what tools do you have at your disposal to be able to make these decisions that, that we can work with? And then let's put together a cropping practice to do that because in, in some areas we can utilize an airplane. In some areas, we cannot. Some people have ap- uh, options of, of using a high-clearance sprayer. In some areas, we do not. As you get to parts of the, of the East Coast and even in Ohio, there, there's places where, can I use dry fertilizers? Can I not? And how do I apply that? So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of land management aspects that go into this, and the equipment keeps getting better. So I enjoy that conversation because it changes. Every grower we sit down with is, okay, how can we do this? And I was like, okay, let's let's put on the table everything that's at our disposal and try to how to do this the most cost-effective way and not give up that yield because as, as a genetics company, we want our genetics to shine. But if we're not taking care of it, and I, I keep going back to mitigate that risk, there's always a risk that's out there. How do we do it the most efficiently and cost-effective way? Um, cost-effective might not have always been the top of our list the past couple of years with the price of the inputs, but with the price of grain. But in the in the world we live in today, we're going to have to try to get a little skinnier, get a little more efficient, and figure out how we're going to maximize every single acre and maximize their genetics to the exact potential they have. And maybe just one more thought on that. It's got to be customized to what my operation is. I, I can't customize it based on the way that you farm. I've got to do it based on the way that I farm in the equipment that I have and the resources that I have. And I think that's where Stein is such a unique entity is we can come in and help with some of those decision-making processes with our sales personnel on the field. Yeah. Well, so yeah, hopefully this one, one more year of experience under our belt and hopefully we can take those lessons and uh, help our customers in, in the year to come. So With that, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's our time for today. I want to thank all of our guests and listeners for joining us for another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. We'll see you next time. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Stein has yield.